You're listening to Why This Universe, a podcast where we break down the biggest ideas in physics. My name is Shalma, and I'm a PhD student at NYU. And I'm Dan Hooper. I'm a theoretical astrophysicist at Fermilab and at the University of Chicago. In the past episodes of Why This Universe, we've talked about a lot of different subjects. We've talked about quantum physics and dark matter and black holes and a whole lot of different things. And human beings or life, I guess, doesn't really come up in much of that at all. I mean, maybe in the quantum interpretation stuff, but for the most part, life seems to be a bystander to all this. Yeah, like space would be expanding whether or not there was life. What else did we talk about? Black holes would exist whether or not there was life. I mean, there, there's some like deep philosophical question involving trees falling in the forest without anybody there to hear <laughs> them. But that aside, it seems like life doesn't have much to do with all of those things we've been talking about. Yeah. So let's do something totally different now. So for the next uh, three episodes, we're going to do a departure from our kind of normal, you know, lifeless <laughs> subject matter. And we're going to focus on life and, and the forms it might take in our universe. And let me just add before we get started that even since recording this episode, we've seen news of possible biosignatures on Venus. Then we saw news that those measurements were probably made in error and there's probably no biosignature on Venus. And then we saw news that they found liquid water on the moon. So it's really an active moment for this type of science and a really exciting time to be talking about it. So with that all said, let's get started. All right, so let's start off by just saying what we're talking about when we say life. What I mean is really anything that's capable of stuff like metabolism, processing information, taking energy and using it to do things. That's a pretty broad definition. Um, you might recall we talked about uh, Erwin Schrodinger's definition of life having to do with a system keeping itself in a, a special state from an entropic perspective. You know, that's the sort of thing I have in mind. I don't necessarily have anything that we've specifically seen on Earth in, in mind. I'm, I have a much broader notion of what I mean by life. But there are a lot of scientists who look at life on earth and imagine life elsewhere in the universe. And they think it's likely at least that life out there in the universe is going to have certain things in common with all life on earth. In particular, they think it's pretty likely that if we find life out there in the universe, it's going to be based on carbon chemistry and it's going to involve liquid water. So let me kind of step through why these two things are so important. So carbon is this really remarkable atom. It's remarkable because it can form up to four different valence bonds at the same time. And that means you can put it together with other kinds of atoms in a huge diversity of ways. Um, I like the, the analogy I like to use um, in, is that uh, if you're trying to take most kinds of atoms and assemble them into complicated molecules, you're playing with Lincoln Logs, which was a toy I had when I was a kid. They're these like just pieces of wood that you kind of interlock into each other to make little houses and things. But once you got carbon 
in the system. You can build wildly more complex things more easily. So I think of carbon chemistry as the Legos. You know, you could build, build toy Millennium Falcons with your Legos. You can build giant castles. You can build catapults. You can build machines that actually do things. Stuff that you can never dream of with Lincoln Logs. So given that life by definition is going to be complicated in order for it to do things like metabolism and process information, you're going to need the kind of complex chemistry that carbon seems to provide. On top of that, carbon has a binding energy that's kind of in the sweet spot. It's strong enough to be pretty stable from a building, you know, building various kinds of molecules, but it's also not so strong that it stops these molecules from being reactive. And this means that you can build this huge variety of interesting reactive organic compounds. There are already 10 million known uh, 10 million different combinations of, of organic compounds that are known, and they're probably a lot more than that. That's why taking organic chemistry in college is so rough, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so I never took that. Um, I took one semester of chemistry in, uh, in, in college, and it was not organic. But all my friends who took organic chemistry said they had to memorize vast, vast, vast lists of names and nomenclatures. And yeah, exactly. A lot of compounds. A lot of compounds. All right. So going on to liquid water, the other uh, like big essential element we think to to life um, is that it, it liquid water plays this incredibly key role, at least on all life on Earth and maybe elsewhere, because it's such an important solvent. So a, a solvent is something that, that dissolves things uh, that are in it, and it allows a bunch of different chemical processes to go on. So water is sometimes called it the universal solvent because it dissolves more substances than any other known liquid. And this includes various salts and oxygen, carbon dioxide, sugar, ethanol, the list goes on and on and on. And all of this is super essential to metabolism, not to mention things like protein folding and DNA base pairing, all this stuff that uh, seems to be essential to any kind of life we can easily imagine. And the reason that water is such a good solvent is because it's a, a what they call a polar molecule. So picture that H2O molecule. So you've got a you've got your oxygen and then kind of off to two different sides are, are hydrogen atoms. The angle between the two hydrogen atoms turns out to be about 104.5 degrees. And like that means that there's a net negative charge on the oxygen side of the molecule and a net positive charge on the hydrogen side. And that kind of polarity of the electric charge is what makes this such a powerful solvent. So we're talking about carbon and water as the basic ingredients for life. And that totally makes sense because of the chemistry and biology and because that's what we see on Earth. But it's possible that life could exist based on different elements and different compounds. Yes, I certainly don't think there's like a proof saying that there couldn't be a living organism that doesn't involve carbon chemistry and doesn't involve liquid water. The view that that's the case is sometimes called carbon chauvinism, which I love that phrase. I think it's a really cool way of describing it. Perhaps the second best like chemical to build uh, biochemistry on might have been silicon. So silicon, just like carbon, has up to four valence bonds. So it has the same sort of features you'd want. But, you know, silicon forms these crystals instead of these long chains that carbon forms. 
and uh, silicon compounds don't tend to combine as easily into as many different forms uh, you know, of molecules. And it would seem like if you were trying to build something as complicated as life, you'd be better off using carbon than silicon. People talk about alternatives to liquid water as a solvent for life too. People talk about like methane and hydrogen sulfide and things like this. And these have like similar features, but again, like they're not as optimal for the complexities of life as liquid water seems to be. So if you didn't have carbon, if you lived in a universe without carbon and without liquid water, maybe your best you know, shot at making life would be silicon with methane or something. But given that our universe does contain things like carbon and liquid water, that seems like the most likely, uh, you know, way that life would emerge. So science fiction definitely plays a big role in helping us imagine the different kinds of life that could exist in the universe, including things like silicon-based life. So I think the most famous example of a silicon-based life form that I could find in science fiction is the character Horda from Star Trek. So this was a silicon-based life form. It kind of looks like a giant lump, and it moves through rock like we move through air. So aside from just making good television and fun characters, I really do believe that science fiction is helpful in allowing us to broaden our conception and imagination about what life could look like in the universe. In fact, I kind of think right now we're in the process of human beings building artificial intelligences that are not, for the most part, carbon and water-based. And I would start to call those things living at some point. Uh, maybe not yet. Wow, that is that is already bold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm well on the on the Erwin Schrödinger, you know, definition of life side of this. Like that, de- you know, a big enough computer, or a computer at all, definitely satisfies those criteria. Okay, so maybe that's a debate for a future episode. But carrying on. But like, even if that's the case, I don't think it's likely that life that doesn't involve carbon and liquid water would spontaneously uh, develop through natural selection very easily, at least not, not as likely as stuff with carbon and, and liquid water. All right. So let's at least for now, like limit our conversation to life based on carbon with liquid water, or at least the liquid water part. And we can notice one thing right away. Um, liquid water can't just exist anywhere. If it's too cold or too hot, you'll have ice or you'll have water vapor. So this gives us a temperature range where we might expect to find life emerging. And we call this temperature range or the region around a star that can support planets in this temperature range, the habitable zone of, a, of, of that star. So a given star will have a region around it where you could plausibly find liquid water and therefore plausibly find uh, the elements you need for life to emerge. So like there's a long history to this, even in like uh, Isaac Newton's seminal work, the Principia, which I think was in like 1680s, that concluded an estimate for the range of distances from the sun that a planet could be at and have liquid water. You know, obviously, Newton wasn't in a position to get that exactly right, but it was kind of a precursor to the modern calculations that have been refined over the last hundred years or something. The basic idea of the calculation is this, is that 
you know, the sun puts out sunlight in all directions. And the farther you are away from the sun, the less of that sunlight you get. The, the, the intensity of sunlight falls off like the distance to the sun squared. So if you're 10 times farther away, you're 100 times less in, radiated by sunlight. So some of that sunlight is absorbed by the planet, heating it up. And some of it is reflected. Uh, the, fr- the fraction that's uh, uh, reflected is what we call the albedo. The Earth has you know, a 37% albedo. So 37% of that incident sunlight gets reflected out in the space. Venus has 65%. The moon has 12%. So there's like some variation there. And then that sunlight that's absorbed, it heats up the planet. And then the planet or, or moon really applies to either one, starts emitting its own light. So you don't think of the earth as emitting a lot of light, but it actually emits quite a bit, Um, not nearly as much as the sun, but it emits its own light. And ultimately an equilibrium is reached. The amount of energy that goes into the earth from the sun is exactly equal to the amount of energy that the earth gives off um, into space. And an equilibrium is, is, is restored. And just by calculating where this equilibrium is, what temperature the earth has to be at to be at that equilibrium allows us to work out how hot we think a planet like the Earth is likely to be. Now, of course, there's a bunch of complications that I've ignored so far. There are things like greenhouse effects, where um, some of that light radiated from a planet or moon might be uh, reflected back down from factors in the atmosphere, things like this. Um, And like this makes a planet like Venus be much hotter than our equilibrium calculation would suggest. But all in all, when you when you carry out all the bells and whistles and you do these calculations, you tend to find that in the case of our solar system, you should only find liquid water for planets or moons that are maybe between about 0.8 the distance uh, between the Earth and the Sun, so a, a 0.8 of an astronomical unit, and about 1.6 astronomical units. So in this sense, the Earth falls kind of in the middle of the sweet spot, of the habitable zone around our sun. Um, Sometimes people call it the Goldilocks zone because it's not too hot and not too cold for the uh, existence of liquid water and thus life. So our sun's habitable zone is, is, you know, wide enough to not just include the Earth, but it also includes things like the Earth's moon, Mars and its two moons. The closer planets like Mercury and Venus are too hot to maintain water liquid water, and then the big gas giants like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, so on and so forth, they are too cold. They would just have water in the form of ice on those much larger and more distant planets. So being in the habitable zone doesn't always mean that a planet has liquid water on it. Take Mars, for example. But it's generally a requirement for liquid water. You need to be in the habitable zone to have liquid water, but just because you're in the habitable zone doesn't mean that you will have liquid water, kind of like the square rectangle thing. But there are some exceptions to this. It turns out that the universe gets creative with finding ways to heat a planet, so it is actually possible to find water outside of the habitable zone under certain conditions. Like you could imagine a planet with a lot of radioactivity or a lot of radioactive elements in its core, and that radioactivity could heat up parts of the planet maybe enough to have liquid water that might lead to other problems, but all the same, it's a possibility. And then probably more interesting is the possibility of what they call tidal heating. So 
just picture like the earth and the moon, the earth's moon causes tides on earth and it moves a bunch of water around. It causes high tides and low tides and there's friction associated with that movement. So it turns out that, you know, the tidal interactions of the earth and the moon heat the earth just a little bit. Now, not nearly enough to matter. We're not, we don't have liquid water on earth because of tides. Um, but you could imagine other moons and planets that are frankly a lot heavier and much more massive and maybe in closer orbits than the earth and the moon. And those could have enough tidal heating to maybe, uh, you know, allow for liquid water. Um, for example, people talk about some of the moons of Saturn, like Titan, some of the moons of Jupiter, like Europa, uh, Ganymede, uh, Callisto. These could have, you know, oceans of liquid water beneath their surfaces, despite being way outside of our solar system's habitable zone. And then you could also imagine even more like speculative ways of generating heat and in, in producing liquid water. I actually wrote a paper back in 2011 with a, a physicist named Jason Steffen, and we proposed that maybe, and you know, we were, we were being very speculative, that maybe there would be places where there was enough dark matter and it would be captured in the cores of planets at a high enough rate, and those particles would interact with each other, creating energy, and maybe that could heat planets enough to have liquid water. You know, that assumes a lot of things about dark matter that we don't know, and it imagines them, these planets being in places that, you know, have an awful lot of dark matter and things. But it was at least a logical possibility we showed that you could have a planet without a star at all that would be hot enough to maintain liquid water. So now we know that planets in the habitable zone of their star have a pretty good chance of having liquid water. And so there are most promising candidates for possible extraterrestrial life. And so we can look at the other stars in our galaxy and try to figure out whether they have any planets in their habitable zones. And this involves calculating where the habitable zone is for each star. And this can vary a lot, depending on the kind of star. First of all, like it depends on how bright the star in question is. If you have a hotter, brighter star, the habitable zone might be farther away from that star. And if you have a colder star, a a less luminous star, um, it might be closer into that star. Um, So it turns out um, we have lots of ways now that have been very fruitful in the last few decades to search for planets around other stars. Um, It wasn't that long ago that this wasn't possible, but now there are, you know, thousands of confirmed exoplanets, you know, actual observed planets around stars other than the sun. Um, the main way that they do this, or there are really two main ways. The first is called transit photometry. And the idea here is you look at a star and you try to notice that it, it periodically gets fainter and brighter. And that happens because a planet moves in front of it, blocking some of its starlight. So you can't actually see the planet itself. It, the planet is, isn't big enough or bright enough, but you can notice that in a regular once per orbit, uh, pattern, that star gets brighter and then fainter and then brighter and fainter. And from that, you can deduce that that planet's there and a little bit about its orbit and how big it is, things like that. The other main search technique is called Doppler spectroscopy. And the idea here is you actually observe the star moving kind of back and forth in a like a wiggle through space because of the gravity of a big planet that's in orbit around it. 
So between these two techniques, um, astronomers have discovered uh, 4,330 exoplanets. This was uh, the number as of September 3rd of 2020. It's not very often in in uh, science that you actually have to look and, you know, has the number I'm quoting changed in the last month. But basically every month you have to do that with exoplanets. I, uh, you know, if, if I use the August number, they would be a little smaller. Like we're always discovering new exoplanets. These 4,330 planets are in 3,200 different star systems all around the kind of local neighborhood that we live in of the Milky Way. And they have a huge variety of different kinds of planets. Some of these planets have masses as small as the Earth's moon, while others are as big as about 30 times the mass of Jupiter, so truly gargantuan planets. Um, by the time you get that heavy, you, you, you're kind of on the borderline between something being a star and a planet. Uh, right around 30 or 40 Jupiter masses is where something behaves, starts to have nuclear fusion and starts to act as a kind of protostar, what we call a brown dwarf. Um, some of these planets also like you know undergo an orbit around their star in just a few hours. And then others take thousands of years to make one orbit around their star. So a huge variety of different planets have been discovered in the recent uh, you know, decade or so. And while there is a ton of variety in the kinds of exoplanets that we've observed, there is some general bias towards discovering larger gas planets like Jupiter. And that's just because of the limits of our measurements. Yeah, so... Both of these main techniques to look for exoplanets, the transit photometry and the Doppler spectroscopy, are really biased to discover the biggest planets in close orbits around their star. Those are the two things that make it easy to find a planet. So um, it's not surprising that if you look at the catalogs of planets that have been discovered, there are an awful lot of like really big gas giants and ones in really close orbits, you know, like Jupiter-like planets, but at Mars-like orbits. That those We find tons of those in these searches, not because we think they're super common, but because they're, you know, comparatively easy to detect. So you're right. It's, it's actually really hard to detect um, the smallest planets, the moon-sized planets. Um, and it's really hard to detect those planets that are farthest away from their host star. But as our detectors get more and more sensitive, we're able to discover a larger and larger variety of exoplanets, including some that look a lot more like Earth. So the nearest known exoplanet is something called Proxima Centauri b. This is only about you know 4.2 light years from the solar system. So this is like literally the nearest solar system to Earth we found an exoplanet in. The star that this planet is orbiting around is a, a red dwarf. So this is the most common kind of star. Um, they're colder than our sun. They have temperatures of usually a few thousand degrees, whereas ours is almost 6,000. And these are also less massive stars than our sun. Like anywhere between about 10% and 80% of the mass of the sun is what we call a red dwarf. This particular planet is like kind of like the Earth. It's a little more massive than the Earth, maybe somewhere between one and three times as massive as the earth. And it's, you know, physical size is, you know, at, at the bottom end, it could be about the same size as the earth, but it could be a little bigger too. We're not exactly sure. And based on its size and its location, its orbit and things, we can infer an equilibrium temperature for this thing to be about, uh, you know, 30 or 40 degrees below zero. 
So pretty cold, but like not that far away from the conditions where uh, you might think liquid water could start to emerge. So it's kind of interesting that the nearest known exoplanet is kind of an Earth-like planet that might potentially have liquid water around a potentially habitable star. So if you take all of the data that astronomers have accumulated in their searches for exoplanets, it looks like roughly one in five or so of the sun-like stars that have been observed have an Earth mass-like planet somewhere in its habitable zone. So this would suggest that in the Milky Way, the whole galaxy, there's something like 10 billion or so roughly Earth mass planets in the habitable zones of roughly sun-like stars. There are probably even more, maybe a few tens of billions of Earth-like planets and habitable zones around red dwarfs in the Milky Way. So this is an enormous number. And if you consider the fact that there are, you know, something like a trillion galaxies in the entire observable universe, there should be potentially habitable planets in vast quantities throughout the universe. So if there are potentially this many Earth-like planets in the universe, why haven't we seen any intelligent extraterrestrial life yet? Why haven't we seen aliens? Why haven't we gotten communication from another intelligent life form? Why does it feel like we're so alone in the universe? Well, we'll talk about this next time on Why This Universe. This episode was produced and edited by me, Shalma Wegsman. Research and writing is done by Dan Hooper and I. Dan is a theoretical physicist at Fermilab and the University of Chicago and is the author of many books, including most recently, At the Edge of Time, Exploring the Mysteries of Our Universe's First Second. All music in Why This Universe is produced by Jake Kleinbaum. Thank you so much for your support and for listening, and we hope you tune in next time to Why This Universe.